Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. open your Bibles to John chapter 21. Now the Gospel of John is a little different than the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to be historical narratives. John is a little different. John in chapter 21 gives us an epilogue to his Gospel. Now an epilogue is not found in Matthew Mark or Luke, but then also in John you have a prologue for in John 1, 1 through 18, and it begins with, in the beginning was the word, that does not sound like a historical narrative, and it isn't. It is an introduction to the book, and so the actual gospel of John is John 1, 19 to John 20, 31, and so in Chapter 21, you have an epilogue, which is a desire to wrap up the various questions that were raised in the book of John and in the Gospels. John MacArthur puts together seven possible reasons for why there is an epilogue. First, it answers the questions of who would care for the disciples after Jesus ascended. Second, it brings closure to the story of Peter. Third, it addresses false rumors that John would live forever, basically. Number four, it explains why John did not include every miracle and teaching of Jesus. Number five, what was the future of the disciples? What is the future of the Christian movement is covered? Number six, it confirms that John is the beloved disciples. And seven, it is a nice bookend ending to the prologue in the front. And so we do not know when chapter 21 was written. You have the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 20, and he appears to the disciples. And then Jesus says, go wait in Galilee, and he will meet them there. And then you turn the page, and it's chapter 21, and Jesus Uh, Peter, looking at what Jesus had done, Peter says to his disciples, I'm going to go fishing. And six other disciples go with him. There were seven total commercial professional fishermen amongst the disciples. And so that group goes to Galilee, gets in a fishing boat, and goes out into the sea of Galilee. And the disciples are listed to go with him in chapter 21. Now, the way things go back then is they understood that they would go out at night, and at night the fish would be near the surface. There's there's belief that you had bugs and things like that that would come to the surface of the water at night, and the fish would go up to the surface to eat the bugs, and so at night you would throw out your net and all the fish would be near the surface feeding and you would collect all sorts of fish. And so Peter, being a professional commercial fisherman, 
said, I'm going to go fishing, and they fish all night. So they start before the sun goes down. They start while it's still daylight. They get in a boat. They get their equipment. They push out. They row out into the Sea of Galilee. The sun goes down. They start to fish. They start throwing out a net, and the net comes up empty. It doesn't even have any shoes or tin cans in it. It is just, you know, nothing in the net. And they throw it over here, and they throw it over there. And they're working hard, is the belief, because they know how to fish. And they do it, and no fish come out. And so the sun is coming up over the horizon, and they're, they're upset. They've worked hard. They're exhausted. It doesn't say the motivation for why they were fishing, but two possibilities are that they went back to what they knew. Jesus had departed from them. Jesus had resurrected. He did some appearances in the upper room. He did some appearances on a road. He is clear that he has risen from the dead, but then he goes and does something away from the disciples, and the disciples return to what they knew. They return to what's comfortable, and for Peter, James, and John, this is also a money-making opportunity. Perhaps they said, well, we can make a little money by fishing and selling the fish, and then when Jesus comes back, we'll have a little money in our pocket. And so they've been fishing for six, eight, ten hours. We don't know how long they were on the, on the lake, but it was quite, it was all night from when the sun was still up until the sun's coming up, eight, ten, twelve hours. And so they're tired and they're thinking, well, we're going to go give up, might as well go home. It doesn't say what they're thinking. And there's somebody in the distance on the, on the shore, and it's a person they don't necessarily recognize initially. And he says, children, have you caught anything? And them being good, honest people say no, as opposed to what people might say today, none of your business or who are you or go away. They were nice, gentle people who had been with Christ, and so they honestly say to the person, no, we have not caught anything. And then if you go down to 6, Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, I'm sure they're thinking, we've been on the right side, we've been on the left side, we've been on the front, we've been on the back, we've been in the deep water, we've been in the shallow water, we've been at this for hours upon hours. But they said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And they barely throw the net on the right side, and it fills with fish. It fills with so many fish that it's difficult to pull it in, okay? When they finally count it, it says 153 fish. Now, most of us look at that and we go, hey, okay, 153 fish. We have no idea what that means. We have no idea how big the nets were. We have no idea what an average catch is. And the Bible doesn't cover the Bible doesn't say an average catch is only nine fish, but this was 153. It doesn't say that. But anybody who was alive at this time, anybody who knew John 
or came after John, who read this gospel, who lived around the Sea of Galilee, knew what the fishing business was. They knew how people caught fish. They had heard stories from relatives, from uncles, from cousins who were fishermen who said, only 30 fish is an average catch. So they would say, wow, 153 fish. This is put there to impress. This is put there to, on one hand, impress, and on the other hand, to prove it's an eyewitness testimony. Because if they said, well, it's just a bunch of fish, then we could say, well, we don't know how many, so this is clearly a made-up story. But they say 153, clearly somebody was there, and somebody was counting, and somebody was counting because it was a large, unusual catch of fish. And the Bible says, and the net wasn't breaking. So the impression we get from that is that the the normal way that this would go is if you had 153 fish, the net would break. Okay? So that's why it tells us it didn't break and we're supposed to be impressed. And so we kind of have to get into the mindset of those who lived at that time to not gloss over the fact that it was 153 fish and the nets didn't break, that that is supposed to be impressive, and that they said, wow, and we're supposed to kind of go, hmm, Jesus did a great miracle. This is a great miracle. And you ask, well, how did he do it? You go, well, I don't know. There's two possible ways. Jesus being in absolute control of all the fish, there is no fish that is out of the control of Jesus. The, Jesus was able to steer all the fish away from the boat during the night, and then in the morning all the fish in the lake try to get in the net. Or Jesus could have created all the fish in the net, Jesus being a miracle worker, we don't say how did he do it, but he did. He caused all the fish in the area to get into the net and to not cause the net to break. That is also part of the miracle. And so John says, hey, it must be the Lord. It must be Jesus. We just had this miracle thing. It must be Jesus, and what does Peter do? Peter puts on his coat, and he jumps in the water. And he jumps in the water, and he tries to swim. Now, it says that by this time, it's about 100 yards from the shore. He abandons the other six people who now have to row and pull all these fish in an almost sinking boat toward the shore. But Peter wants to get to Jesus. And you say, well, why did Peter want to get to Jesus? Peter probably wanted to get to Jesus because the last time Peter saw Jesus, he denied him three times. And he wanted to make amends. He wanted to gain forgiveness from Jesus. And so he gets to the shore and the other people get to the shore. And Jesus has a fire. He has a fire with fish and bread on the fire. And you say, well, where did Jesus get the fish? Well, Jesus can make fish do anything. Uh, people have, you know, maybe the fish swam and jumped into the fire. We do not know how the fish got there. 
that Jesus is a miracle worker. He can do anything. There is nothing greater than Jesus' ability. And so to just create fish and bread and fire on the shore is not outside of Jesus' ability. But he's cooking fish, and he says to the disciples, uh, bring me some of your fish. What he's saying is, add your fish to my fish. And some people say, well, that's a, that's a profound thing about, about witnessing or being fishers of men, that Jesus is working over here, and I'm working over here, and everybody that gets saved is added together into all, into one big bucket in heaven at the end of time. Now, it's a possibility. I don't know if this is what is teaching or Jesus wanted to prove that the fish were real. If the fish were just counted and thrown over there, eh, that's one thing. But if you take some of the fish and you cook them and eat them, they are real fish. It is a true fish experience. And perhaps Jesus was doing that. And so what does the 153 fish mean? Well, it means that the disciples, at least these seven, will eat for some period of time. I don't know how many fish you can eat, but seven people eating 153, it may be months, because they would dry it and they would salt it and they would cook it. They would eat for a long period of time. They would also be able to sell the large fish. They are large fish, it says that. And we're supposed to look at that and go, wow, large fish. Fishermen know what a large fish is. I don't necessarily know what a large fish is. But it's, they're sellable. These are commercial fishermen. So they could have kept 30 for themselves and sold 123 to make some money for the ministry. And so you have the disciples going back to what they knew the best, going back to what is comfortable for them. And Jesus shakes them up and shows them that their movement from this day forward is going to be Christ-centered. Jesus actually tells them that this is the last time they're going to fish. He is going to make them fishers of men. So they're going to spend their time talking to people, catching people, getting people to understand the gospel so that they can be brought into the kingdom of God. When you talk about fishers of men versus fishers of fish, uh, we do, people try to make all sorts of views of how we throw nets out and how we convince people, how we catch people. And I think Today, the only way to do it, because there is so much noise in people's minds, there is so much noise in the world, the only way that we can get people to understand the gospel is to talk to them, is to have some level of relationship where there is some level of trust. Now, it may not be absolute trust, but a level of trust that if I say, I'm involved in a church and it's a place where there is community and where there is family and where there is trust, they can say, huh, 
maybe I'll try it. And then they come and they hear the gospel and then through the work of the Holy Spirit, they come into the kingdom of God. I was talking with somebody yesterday about this being the last miracle of Jesus in the gospels and it is the only miracle that is on the other side of the resurrection and it is only in the book of John and so we do not know exactly when it happened in relationship to the rest of the book of John but it was after the resurrection and it's an attempt to show readers today that the resurrection was not the final peg in Christ's work. The resurrection was not the end. The resurrection was the beginning of Christ handing off his work to the disciples. And the disciples, after Jesus ascends, so you had Jesus resurrect from the dead. And he spent 40 days teaching the disciples. We do not have a complete record of what he said to the disciples, but the Bible is clear that it was 40 days, four zero days, that Jesus was on earth after he was resurrected. Then he goes to the Mount of Olives, and all the disciples are gathered around, thinking that it's another time of teaching, another post-resurrection sermon on the Mount. They seem to be interested in what he's going to say and then Jesus just floats up into the air into the clouds and disappears and an angel appears and says why are you standing here staring up into the sky Jesus will come again in the same way and so that was at the end of the 40 days and then the disciples go to the upper room because they don't know necessarily what to do. They, don't, they think, well, maybe Jesus is coming back this afternoon. There was very early Christian writing that believed that Jesus was going to come back about a year later, one year anniversary. Give us a year to do stuff, and then Jesus is going to come back. But they went to the upper room, prayed, taught, had a little election to replace Judas. And then 10 days they were in the upper room and then God sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and it is the Holy Spirit that gives the power to the disciples to go out and be fishers of men. And then reading through Acts and reading through the letters of Paul, we know that it is now just the, 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 the salvation, the salvation experience. I believe in Jesus Christ. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. I turn my life over to God. And in return, I gain forgiveness. I gain for redemption. I gain atonement for my sins. And I gain the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells me. So everybody who says, I'm saved today, we can say with, with confidence that you have the Holy Spirit. And it is that Holy Spirit that gives you the impetus, the power, the direction to look at the Bible and say, Huh, I never noticed that before. I better change 
how I'm living to follow this more and begin to follow God more and more each day that we're in the Bible. When we look at the Bible and we look at the end of John 20 in 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. And so John is the only gospel of the four that says, this is your, the point. I wrote all this, and this is why. And you need to look at that and you say, huh, I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I must have missed something. And then you go back and you read more of John, we believe that he makes such a clear case that this church and pretty much every other church that I've ever talked to or looked at or seen, if somebody comes seeking God or says, I think I believe, what do we do? We give them a gospel of John and we say, read this because we believe that John's telling the truth, that he put together a select collection of teachings and miracles to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you go over to 25 of 21, John says it again. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. We look at this miracle and you say, well, how many miracles did we cover in this pulpit? The answer is 33. We covered 33 miracles in this pulpit, but he did many other things. And if John were to write them all down, the world is not big enough to hold the book. So when we think, ah, Jesus did a miracle here, or did a miracle there, or did this, but didn't do much, John is saying Jesus did so much that if scribes followed him around and wrote down every miracle that he did, the volume would be so big, you wouldn't be able to hold it, you wouldn't be able to read it. When we talk about Jesus being a miracle worker, Jesus having the power over every disease and over every demon and over every thing that came his way, every infirmity, you have people like Philo. Philo was a Roman historian who wrote about the time of Jesus. He didn't write about Jesus, he wrote about the Roman government. And he wrote about the philosophy of the Roman government. And he mentions that the, the Jordan Valley from Galilee down to the Dead Sea, down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho, from Nazareth up north down to the center of Jewish life down south, and the Jordan River in between, that that whole section was disease-free for three and a half years. Roman government tried to figure out why. Roman government tried to figure out if there was an elixir or a prayer or a ritual that people were doing, but because they ignored Jesus, they couldn't figure it out. But it was clear 
that for a period of time, and the Romans did not know why, in this area there was no disease. There may have been no death. There was no demon possession. There were no crazy people. There was nothing out of the ordinary. And people who went into that area would come out with no disease, with no, they would consider demon possession, perhaps craziness or something of this nature, people acting weird. There was nobody acting weird because Jesus was casting out all the demons. Jesus was healing all the diseases. Jesus was raising people from the dead. There's only two resurrections that are covered in the Bible. You have the, uh, the widow's son at Nan. He came in and there was a funeral and there was a dead person at the funeral. And he raised the son from the dead. And then the big one is he raised Lazarus from the dead, which got the attention of the chief priests and the scribes. And it was because of that that they really, really pressed on to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus could have avoided all this. Jesus could have stayed away. Jesus could have gone to Spain. Jesus could have done anything to not go to the cross, but his point of healing all these people, his point of raising people from the dead, his point of casting out demons is to say, I'm going to the cross, and when I raise from the dead, you will have this bucket of proof and evidence that I was telling the truth. And so when he rose from the dead and showed himself to various people, as it says in Paul's writings, and ultimately 500 people at one time, and these seven that are here, he showed himself to people over and over and over again, showing that what he said during his life is absolutely true, and it's proven by the resurrection. And then its conclusion of all this is that Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit ten days after the uh, ascension. And so, what else is in the epilogue? Jesus restores Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus asks Peter, tells Peter, to feed his lambs, do you love me? Three times. Jesus, uh, Peter answers correctly all three times and says, yes, he does. And then he says, go do it. And we see that as a full and absolute restoration of Peter to proper standing with God. He then tells Peter that uh, the manner of death that he will have is that he will be crucified. And tradition Holds. We do not have this in the Bible, but legend and tradition is that when he was being crucified, he said, don't crucify me the same way Jesus was, and he was crucified upside down. Then John identifies himself as the author of all this. We say, ah, he's all made up, but it's not. There's an actual person named John, who was the brother of James, who was the son of Zebedee, who wrote all this, and you can see him. You can go in heaven. 
We talk about heaven and who you're going to see. You're going to see John, and you're going to say, you know, what a great book, and he'll say, thank you, and I don't know what else he'll say. But the idea of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is to say, there was a man named Jesus who came to earth, born of a virgin on Christmas Day, lived a perfect, sinless life, did all manner of miracles that we can't even count, taught all manner of wonderful things that we can't even count, and then he died on a cross, he rose on the third day, he ascended into heaven, and someday he's coming again. And we can read these miracles and say, as John did in the book of Revelation, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I just praise your name for these miracles, for all that you're showing us, for everything that is being shown in these Gospels. I pray that you would cause us to believe it, to believe it fully and completely. And as things fall apart in the world, that we would stand firm for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you for this and as your blessing on the meal to follow and the remainder of the day. We ask all this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.